Good morning. We're glad that you're with us. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, we'll continue our study. Maybe you haven't noticed, but uh, beginning in January, I've gone to this uh, upper room discourse recorded for us in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 13 and then through the high priestly prayer of Christ. And John chapter 17 is an emphasis for us as we spend time considering and contemplating uh, the communion service and uh, the Lord's Supper as we know it to be instructed in the context of Scripture. This will be the last introduction message to our study in Galatians, and we will jump into Galatians chapter 1 next Sunday. But as we do this elongated study that reflects not just on the book of Galatians, but the broader context, what the gospel really is and what the gospel really means. These verses today in John chapter 14 are critically, critically, critically important verses that define the essence of our salvation. I was thinking as we were singing this morning, and I'll confess with my voice, I didn't do a lot of singing, but I was listening to you sing I ask myself this, what is your story? Because your story will tell me whether or not you understand the gospel. Your story will give me insight as to whether or not you understand even John chapter 14. Your story, whatever you tell me about your hope, about the promise and your salvation, will reveal much about whether or not you understand the gospel. And as we delve into that a little bit this morning, we'll introduce some concepts to you that we will address specifically and in detail in the context of our study. We have to get the gospel right. Otherwise, there are people who believe that are okay who aren't okay, and there are eternal consequences to that. God forbid that someone here at First Baptist bears eternal consequence because we weren't clear about the gospel. I will be perfectly clear, and sometimes you will cheer it, and sometimes you won't like it, but it's the gospel that saves us through Jesus Christ alone. Are you thankful for that gospel? I pray that you are, and this table will remind us of the essence of the gospel as we gather together as God's people. Pray with me, please. Holy Father, thank you for this time and occasion. Open our eyes to see the truth of your words in John chapter 14 and all of their simplicity. Yet give us a mind and a will to know the complexities behind the words that were spoken so that we understand the whole context of the gospel laid out for us throughout the New Testament that it is a gospel that is rooted in Christ alone. There's nothing that we bring to the table, and there's nothing that we could possibly do to engender that forgiveness, but it is solely because of your love for us that we know you, and that is our story. So as we reflect upon this passage and the conclusion of our service, sit at the table together, remind us of what was accomplished for us on our behalf without any of our contribution to secure our story, our hope that remains in Christ alone. Bless us as we spend some time together this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as you can hear, I'm still struggling with my voice a little bit. Uh, I was told recently that I need to minimize my talking and my projection. And I don't know what to make of that because this is what I do and this is what God has created me to do. So we'll see how this all plays out. I also will begin my Sunday school class this morning in the chapel as we reflect upon these introductory uh, messages to what is the gospel and look at particularly how one intuitively knows that there is a God. If you want to dig a little bit deeper and take a second glance or look at some of the things that we've discussed in the last four weeks, I'd encourage you to join that class as we kind of break all of that down and ask ourselves, what does this really mean and how can we know. But make no doubt about it, if you really want to know the fullness of the gospel, you must turn your attention to the scripture. For that is where God gives us the intimate details of the gospel spelled out over the course of his revelation through the apostles declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. Jesus' words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The essence of the gospel given to mankind, reaffirmed to the apostles, and clarified throughout the New Testament. To set the background again in John chapter 13, where we started, Jesus speaks to these disciples who are gathered in this upper room to celebrate the Passover and the Lord's Supper, to hear the final instructions of Christ before that, that time in which he would offer himself as a ransom for many on the cross of Calvary. And he is reiterating the critical, important things that they must know moving forward. And one of the, the glaring things in the text, particularly in the first 11 verses, is that all of those who had been with Jesus, who were gathered at that table, his disciples, the original 12, he says, not all of you are clean. Not all of you understand what I've been telling you. Not all of you understand the gospel that I present unto you. Not all of you understand the message of salvation. Of course, we know that he's referring to Judas, but those are haunting words. And I have to reflect and, and even think about this morning. Not all of you are clean. So how can you be clean? And, and that's why we're doing this study. That's why we want to be sure about the gospel. That's why we want you to understand the critical elements of it. Not to single out Judas himself, but the lack of clarity extended to most of those disciples. In John chapter 13, verses 21 and on, they began to ask themselves, is it I? Maybe it's me that's not clean. Maybe I don't understand. Maybe I don't get that. How many of you in your own 
personal walk with Christ have come up full against a lack of assurance. Am I really a Christian? Did you ever ask yourself that question? Am I I really going to be okay at the sound of the trumpet? When I stand in the presence of God himself and plead the blood of Jesus Christ, did did, did I get it? Am I going to be okay? Evangelicalism today is plagued by the doubt that comes to the security of the believer because we haven't gotten the gospel right. We have given a message that implies that there's something that you do. And if it's something that you do, I'll be the first to tell you, you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble. We'll show you why briefly this morning and delve deeper into it as we go along. We read in John chapter 13, verse 36, of the danger of self-assurance. Where Jesus says, all of you will fall away this night. You'll, you'll, you'll run and hide because of what's going to happen. And Peter says, can't trust the rest of them, but I'll die for you, Jesus. How'd that work out for Peter? His story was about Peter. His story was about himself. What was the end game to that? Today, for the rooster crows this evening, you will deny me, Peter, three times. Nope. No, I won't. That's a dangerous kind of assurance that Jesus is correcting. So in this text, Jesus, in verse 1, has gathered these disciples. And remember, in, in chapter 12 of the book of John, he started or finished telling them. He had been telling them for some time, and it didn't register, that he wasn't going to be with them always, that he was He's going to depart and and, and leave them. They didn't understand the complexities of all of that, but it began to to rattle their world. Listen carefully. It's not that they didn't believe that he was the Christ, the son of the living God, save Judas. They didn't really understand the full implications of what that meant. So as their hearts were restless and stirred, even by this preceding chapter, not all of you are clean. Do you see the restlessness in the text? Is it me? Is it you? Thank God it wasn't like the church today. No, it's this guy over here. Who are we to judge somebody else? And their hearts are restless, and they're beginning to wonder, and how is all this going to play out? And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, stirred, agitated. We could spend the next month and a half in the next phrase. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. He is claiming deity. He's claiming to be the son of the living God. He's saying nothing different than what Peter said prior to that, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And yet Peter still didn't get his story right, and he would later on. He's claiming to be deity. He says in verse 6, I am the way. That phrase, I am, is a critically important phrase, particularly in the Old Testament the great I am, the Jehovah God, the God of all creation. Jesus says to his disciples in a state of confusion and maybe even agitation, you believe in God. Believe in me also. He is claiming to be the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, God in 
the flesh. Like I said, we could spend a long time in this text. We don't have the time this morning. He continues. My father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that they go and prepare a place for you? Don't, don't you trust me after all this time? Don't you trust the things that I tell you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He's trying to quiet the restlessness and their troubled hearts, all of these thoughts that are going through their heart and mind of, of, of doubt and, and wonder, including this sense of abandonment that he is preparing them for. I, I will go away. You know the way to where I'm going. But did they? Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? It's not that they didn't believe him. It's not that they didn't even believe in him. In order to find some sense of assurance, Thomas says, we have to know where you're going. But Jesus had given them all of the assurance that they already needed. But Thomas says, no, I need a little bit more. Where are you going? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Do you notice the answer to the question? didn't seem to fit the question. Thomas said, where are you going? And Jesus said, I am the way to the Father. He is causing them to think a little bit deeper than a place, a little bit deeper than, than a destination. He is He's asking them to consider the deepness and the depth of the gospel that he had been presenting to them. I am the way. There's only one. I am the truth. There's only true truth, and I am the life. If you seek eternal life, you will find it no place else. I am. You see God through Christ connecting the dots in, in this passage of Scripture? And if they didn't receive it or understand it, he asked or makes this proclamation, no one comes to the Father except through me. Boy, does that fly in the face of a culture today. There are many paths to God. Maybe that's where you're living your life today. Then not all of you are clean. Because there are not many paths to God. There is one path. It is a narrow gate, and his name is Jesus, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. We said in our introduction that there's nothing that you can do or say to incur the favor of God for the forgiveness of sins. We reminded you of Martin Luther commenting that there's nothing you can do by saying that nothing is not a little something. It's nothing. And that is the crux in my opinion, the present-day evangelicalism, we speak the words nothing, but that's not really what we mean. 
and we add a little bit and we sprinkle a little bit and, and, and we attach a little bit and no longer is it nothing, there's something. And there's something inside of this Western civilization mind that says, I am the determiner of my destiny. I have libertarian free will. I will do whatever I want to do. <clears throat> but this is something you can't do. Only Christ can do it for you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. It is this gospel that we've introduced you to, this gospel that we've said exists in this little mantra in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, through the glory of God alone. I don't want to get bogged down in the details, but I'm going to introduce some deeper issues when it comes to justification or being declared righteous, to be saved, if you would, from this text of Scripture and give you several examples in the context of Scripture for what I mean. There's a Latin term that was used in the Reformation. Now, let's set the stage here. The Reformation in the 16th century was a critical time frame where godly men asked the question, do we have the gospel right? Is this really what the Bible says. There was one holy, Catholic, universal Christian church. But at the end of that, or throughout the process of the Reformation, would come apart, and there would be a group who would leave that unified church and be, be protesting what, what they were being taught there because it wasn't really the gospel. And there were some key figures who led us through that whole process. And that's where the word Protestants come from. They protested the confused gospel that was being taught that had morphed into something that it wasn't. The key, or one of the key men of that Reformation, you know, was Martin Luther. Martin Luther, and the existence of that, that one holy church had been raised by the dilution of the gospel or addition to the gospel. And the addition to the gospel, when it came to justification, and, and I'm just going to unpack this a little bit, and, and, and there's a reason for it. To be justified means to be declared righteous. You follow me? So how does one become righteous? It was something that plagued Martin Luther. How can I be righteous before a holy God? That's a question that every one of you needs to ask yourself this morning. How can I be righteous before a holy God? Now, what had happened in this time frame, up until this point in time, is that this righteousness went from being an imputed righteousness. In other words, on the cross, Jesus bore the penalty for our sin. He took all of our sins upon him. And at the same time, for those who believe, he took all of his righteousness and he put it upon those who believed in him. There was an exchange that took place. It was imputed. What does imputation mean? It means that it came from outside of you, not inside of you. So what was Martin Luther's dilemma? This is important. 
the church had gotten away from imputed righteousness and was teaching a doctrine of infused righteousness. What does that mean? It doesn't deny grace. It doesn't deny Christ. But what it teaches is that God gives you a jump start to salvation by giving you the grace to walk away from your sinful life, but you have to finish the process. He's going to give you a little bit of grace, and then you need to work hard to flesh that grace out in your life to make sure that when the day comes, you will be in eternal presence of God. Do you notice what changed? It wasn't about Christ alone anymore. It was about something that you were going to do to finish what was started. They believed that this grace was first infused at infant baptism. They gave you the ability to say no to sin and yes unto righteousness. And the phrase that was popular in the church at that time was this, if you do what is in you, God will not deny you grace. He's giving you everything that you need. And if indeed you do and make the most of what he's given you, you will make it. What if you don't do the most he's given you? Well, by implication, you won't make it. And guess what? There was a tension in the church because they realized, I can't do everything he wants me to do, so I'm not going to make it. Well, we have an answer for that as well. You can buy an indulgence be forgiven of your sin or or better yet even after you're dead people can pray for your salvation and eventually you're going to make it what kind of security is in that Martin Luther was living under that reality many of you don't know this about him Martin Luther based on that infused righteousness said I hated the God who punishes sinners. What what do you mean by that? He said, what kind of God would promise me eternal life and then expect a standard of goodness that I can never achieve? What kind of God is that? I hate that God. He is asking me to do something I can't do. Sobering, isn't it? I I can't do that. And I hated God. And he asked the question, where can I find a gracious God? And he called this pursuit of infused righteousness, finishing what God started in Christ. He called it a fool's errand. He said, nobody can do it. The standard of God is so high, nobody can do what he's demanding of us. What don't I understand about the gospel? Great question. It's the very essence of what we want to speak of in this this study. He came to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the power of God in the gospel. But it was Romans 1, 17 that changed his mind on everything. With the Bible, both in Habakkuk, the prophet of the Old Testament, and Paul in Romans chapter 1, declares the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous are righteous because of faith and faith 
alone. You follow that? That's what he's talking about right here. That's a huge implication. He had hated this God who was asking something of him that he could never do. And as he searched the scriptures, the Holy Spirit made his eyes open. He said, Martin Luther, stop looking for a way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father except through me. There's nothing you can do. It is in Christ alone. You are righteous by faith alone. What did that mean? If you are righteous by faith alone, you aren't righteous by works. You understand? That's the dilemma of Martin Luther. The Holy Spirit illuminated him at that particular time of Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He said, I felt that I had been born anew and that the gates of heaven had been opened and the whole of Scripture gained a new meaning. And from that point on, the phrase, the justice of God, no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of his great love toward me. Do you see what happened there? He said, everything changed that day. I recognized that God loved me. And Jesus accomplished this for me, and there was nothing, nothing, nothing I could do. I know that's hard for Western civilization, but let me connect some dots here. If there's something that you have to do, can anyone tell me when you know that you've done it? For those who still want to include something we do in salvation... You will spend the rest of your life struggling with the security that you have in Jesus Christ. Because every time you look in the mirror, you will know that you haven't done everything. You will know there's some things that you haven't done. And if you are basing your assurance on that, you will find no assurance of your salvation. None. It's not to be found. But if you're basing it on the finished work of Christ, you notice the key term is finished. It's done and over. It is finished. If you're basing it on that, you are overwhelmed by the grace of God that took you from being a sinner to a righteous person. There's a Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, or simul justice et peccator simultaneously justified and sinner. It's an incoherent statement if you look at it on its face value. But this Latin phrase came out of that holy Catholic church. It was part of the issue that Martin Luther was having until he saw things clearly. In essence, it means at the same time I am justified, I am declared righteous, but at the same time, I know I'm still a sinner. Follow that line of thinking? So as God looks upon me, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, he says, that person, John Allen, 
is righteous. And John sinks down in his chair because he knows <laughs> nothing I did here. My apologies, John. You're right. It's nothing you did here. You were righteous because of Jesus Christ alone. And I won't speak about John now. All right, just keep that, get that out of your head. But whoever I'm speaking about knows that they're not righteous. The thoughts in our head, the words that come out of our mouths, the things that we don't want to do that we do. And anyone have that issue? I'm not righteous in and of myself. I'm being sanctified. I'm praying that I become more righteous as time goes on. But this isn't a finished product until I see him and become like him. But when Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see my ugliness. He sees that he has rescued me. When you claim entrance into the heaven... You claim it not on anything that you did, but on what Christ did for you. For the gospel is in Christ alone. You follow me? This is really important. And you say, well, it's just a little bit of a difference. It is an eternal difference. It's an eternal difference. You are either declared righteous or you're trying to achieve it all by yourself, and that is a dead end. You say, well, Pastor Jim, I'm not sure about this. Well, good. Turn with me. First to Acts chapter 9. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. You know it as Paul's conversion story. Remember, remember that? So Paul was on the road to Damascus. So there's anyone who could claim righteousness in and of himself. The achievement of the law. It would have been the apostle Paul. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. But he hated this Jesus. He hated this Jesus. And he was going to Damascus to persecute those who were people of the way, those who had claimed Jesus Christ as their Savior. And as he goes on that road, the Bible says that there's a bright light that flashed around him and a voice, verse 4, that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You notice that this voice didn't say, you're persecuting my children. He said, you are fighting against me, Paul. <laughs> you're, you're coming after me. That's your issue. Well, we know what happens. And he's gloriously saved. How many of you think that he was looking for God. How many of you think he was looking for, for the message of salvation? No, he was hating what he had heard, and he hated those who professed in Christ alone. He was looking to persecute and even kill them. And yet God appears and rescued him. What did Paul do? Nothing. God said, you, Paul. I'm going to open your eyes and you will see that it is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. It was a towering figure. He goes into the town. 
Ananias is said to go to Paul and lay hands on him. And Ananias says, whoa, 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 God, this Paul, he's a dangerous dude. I can't do that. Verse 15 of Acts 9. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Answer this question. Did Paul choose Jesus or did Jesus choose Paul? He was going and out to destroy the people of the way, the people who were following Jesus. God said, you're an instrument. You will be my mouthpiece. Watch this. He became one of the greatest mouthpieces for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went from being a Jew of a Jew, a Hebrew of a Hebrew, to instantly one who believes that the gospel is in Christ alone. Gives you a little background to Galatians. Why did he take such a terrible reaction to those who were changing the gospel? Because Paul knew there was only one gospel, and if there was anyone who could speak to that, it was him. He said, I did all the other stuff, and it was not enough. Romans chapter 7, just briefly. This text, beginning verse 14, the same Apostle Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, and I am of the flesh, old under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I, I do everything that I hate. Now, if I do that which I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul is basically saying, listen, I'm really trying hard to cooperate with God in this whole thing and do the right thing all of the time. But there are times, and I believe this is post-salvation, he said, I don't always do what I should be doing. I know I should be, but I don't always do it. Isn't that the testimony of every believer in this room? Yes, no. You get it right all the time, you got the gospel wrong. You got the gospel wrong. Paul says, as long as I have this sin, I can't do any good thing to earn the favor of God. It has been secured in Jesus Christ. This is why this is important. And as we move beyond this simultaneously justified and sinner, we move beyond the initial work of salvation and we move to the Christian life and we are reminded that even living the Christian life demands a dependency upon the grace of God. It is not about works. It couldn't be about works because the things you want to do, and why did he want to do them? Because he wanted to please God. He said, I can't do. Although you are rescued from your sin and stand positionally righteous, this sin resides in your flesh. He said so in the text. And you won't receive your glorified body where sin is plucked out of that flesh until you see him and become like him in heaven. So good luck adding to your salvation. Good luck finishing the course all by yourself. It is impossible. And when we talk about grace alone, we are talking not just about salvation. We are talking about even living the Christian life. It is by grace. It is by grace. It is by grace. It is by grace because you can't do it by yourself simultaneously justified yet center. Martin Luther said, what righteousness I have is an alien righteousness. 
It is foreign to me. I can't ever have it. It comes from outside of me. You know where it comes from? In Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. So we delve into and dig into the implications of that. The very verse in Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith, also grants to us the security of our salvation. If it is not and never has been about me, but only about Christ, if I can only do that which is good and right through the grace of God, then I must live my life post-salvation in the settled future and glory. I must live as righteous as possible knowing that the things I want to do, I won't do, and the things I don't want to do, I'll do. But, but, but knowing that when I get into heaven, all of that is going to be changed and my salvation is finally going to be complete. He's not saying that how you live your life doesn't matter. He says it does matter, but you can't live that life without the grace that is found in Christ. The just shall live by faith for salvation, and if you want to achieve a faithful life today, it must be by the grace of God. He gives us the ability to live soberly and righteous in this present age. Who did that? If Paul couldn't. Who in the world do we think we are? So Paul comes to the conclusion in verse 24, a wretched man that I am. I've been declared righteous, but I'm, I'm not a righteous man. Who will deliver me from this body of death, this body where sin still resides and its consequent ultimate death? Thanks be to God, verse 25, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the gospel. By faith alone, through grace alone, for the glory of God alone, but always, always, always in Christ alone. Are you living your life today? The settled future of glory? Are you living your life having been rescued from the blood of Jesus Christ and called to a life of faith dependent on the grace of God? to live out the rest of our days in anticipation of that day that we see him and we become like him, when all of this battle and struggle in our life is finally over, are you looking forward to that day? Do you understand the angst that comes by realizing that the demands of Scripture are so big I can never meet them and you look yourself in the mirror and you say, I'm not going to make it i got to work a little bit harder. And you learn to hate the very God who set the standard instead of rest in that God through Jesus Christ that he has done the work. We are just waiting for it to be finished. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. So what is the purpose when God's people come to this table? to remind us of these truths. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ alone, you didn't do anything. It's through his sacrifice alone, you didn't do anything. And even today, you must be reminded that day to day to day, trying to live the Christian life is dependent on this same Christ and grace. 
the unmerited favor of God to give us the capacity not to be saved in our works, but to live a life of righteousness because we know the King. Our lives from beginning to end in our salvation and Christ alone. Christ alone. And we still say, but wait a second, Pastor, isn't there something? What is it that you bring to the table? Nothing. Nothing, nothing. I feel like Martin Luther when I rest in that and the gospel becomes glorious. To think of it in those terms, the gospel becomes bigger than perhaps I even contemplated in the past. My great God and Savior Jesus Christ did that for me. Glorious. And even more so because I know there's nothing in me could have given me the righteousness that God demands. He did this. Rather than causing us to be judgmental in the rest of the world, these lost sinners, perhaps it gives you greater cause to look at your life and say, and such was I, but the grace of God changed all of that. And that is the gospel we have to take to them. Because if it's a gospel of works, there are eternal consequences. So Paul, he writes to the Corinthian church, says, For I have received from the Lord that which also I deliver to you. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One of the things that God impresses upon me Every time I come to this table is that I'm not home yet. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Paul says in Corinthians 11, then examine yourself. Examine yourself. Maybe you're looking at all of this wrong. Maybe you think there's something that you bring to the table. No, there is nothing, nothing, nothing. It is in Christ alone. And that's overwhelming. That my God would die for me, that I might live. It's like being born anew, in Martin Luther's words. Remember that day that you were born anew? (laughs) Oh, if I only knew the things today that I knew back then. I could have saved myself a lot of trouble. But I know that I've been redeemed. I know how I've been persuaded, and I am committed to that gospel of Christ alone until the day that I stand before my king. That is the gospel, and that's what we celebrate. So as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death until he come, and he is coming.
to the glory of God the Father. Jeff Furman, would you ask the blessing on the bread? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this communion service, Lord, that uh, God has set apart that we can take time and remember, Lord, as we are living a life that is uh, dead to sin. God, you uh, loved us enough to send your son to die on the cross for us. As we partake of this bread now, Lord, and that represents your broken body, Lord, and the sacrifice that you gave for each one of us to provide a way of salvation to each one of us, Lord, I pray that we would take the opportunities, Lord, that uh, come before us to share our story, to share what you've done for each one of us, Lord, and how we are unrighteous, Lord, but you loved us enough to send your son. And I just pray, Lord, that we would also remember this and take the opportunity to uh, live our lives that are honor and pleasing to you, Lord, until we see you again. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. No man comes to the Father except through me. At the same night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it blessed and gave it to his disciples and said this is my body which is for you do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me Derek Eisnago, there's a blessing on the cup. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the sacrifice that you've made for us. You're pouring out of your blood. For those that were an enemy of you, you can't even begin to fathom why you would do that, the love that you show for us. But in spite of that, we thank you so much for it. Again, we thank you for this sacrifice. Thank you for the blood that you've shed upon us to wash us clean. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the same manner also when he had supped, he took the cup, gave it to his disciples and said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. Pastor Ken, would you pray, please? Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us this gathering around your table. At this table, you have declared your gospel, your goodness, your love, your mercy, your righteousness, and what you've done through your Son. Lord, this gospel message began with you, it ends with you, and ultimately it brings us to you. All of our blessings that we have through Christ, our adoption, our forgiveness, justification, reconciliation, redemption, all lead to us getting you. 
you're our highest treasure. There is no better gift than you. You are the gospel. We thank you that we could celebrate this gospel here this morning. And Lord, we pray that as we see all these gifts that you've given us, your blessings flowing out of your goodness, that we would, out of hearts transformed, give back, give from hearts of gratefulness because of you and for you. Bless these gifts that you would use it to further your kingdom, advance your gospel. We thank you for all that you've given to us. As we give back, it's again because of you, it's for you, that your name would be known. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.